And this is the final episode of season four, right before Thanksgiving. This is when I take a long hiatus between Thanksgiving and New Year's, and I normally don't come back till the end of January with new episodes. So be back January, I'll keep you posted, for the beginning of season five of Paranormally Speaking. That's right, I have made it five seasons, and I can't believe it's still going. I My listener base grows every time I launch a new episode. Word of mouth helps to spread this, plus social media really keeps it in the loop. All of you in that regard. Thank you so much for listening this entire season and for continuing to come back every week for episodes of Paranormally Speaking with me, your host, Neil Parks. I hope you have a great holiday season and enjoy the best of 2022. This is a bit longer than my normal time frame of an episode, but of course there's a lot to cover from the year that was 2022. Please hold for an important message from one of my sponsors. Now playing one of the biggest podcasts of the week on the free iHeartRadio app. Now number one for podcasting. Hits just keep coming. I've got more to share. For example, former Air Force officers share evidence. Tales of UFO encounters and the truth as we know it. Highlights, a group of former United States Air Force officers shared what they say is proof that UFOs have interfered with American nuclear weapons. The panel of Air Force officers also discussed their involvement in UFO incidents at nuclear missile launch facilities and test sites during the Cold War era. Tuesday, October 19th, former U.S. Air Force Captain and Nuclear Missile Crew Commander Robert Salaz, former USAF Captain and Nuclear Missile Targeting Officer Robert Jamison, former USAF Captain and Nuclear Missile Crew Commander David Schindel, and former USAF Lieutenant and Missile Test Photographic Officer Robert Jacobs, held a press conference at the National Press Club where they presented and discussed evidence that UFOs have tampered with American nuclear weapons. Former Air Force officer Robert Salaz was the on-duty commander of an underground launch control facility assigned to Mal Storm Air Force Base, Montana, on March 24, 1967. Read a press release published prior to this event. He has publicly stated over a span of 25 years that all 10 of his ICBMs became inoperable and that eight days earlier on March 16, 1967, a similar incident occurred at another missile launch control facility. Numerous other UFO-related incidents with possible implications for national security have been publicly acknowledged by former public officials whose efforts resulted in the creation of a secret Pentagon UFO investigation group, the Advanced Aerospace Threat Identification Program, AATIP. This press conference presented witness testimony and other evidence of many of such incidents. The debrief which spoke to Captain Salas prior to the Air Force officers' media event covered the press conference and filed a lengthy report as well as an audio interview with Salaz. During that press conference, former USAF 
Captain and Nuclear Missile Targeting Officer Robert Jameson told a story about one night in late March 1966. On that night, Jameson had been ordered to the Oscar Flight Launch Facility, where several of his missiles had somehow been disabled. Bob, did you hear what happened? Jameson recalled being asked when he arrived at the hangar. The sheriff in Roy, Montana reported a UFO in the area, told the Air Force Base, and at the same time, 10 missiles in Oscar's flight went off alert. To go off alert for no reason, and then have 10 missiles to go off alert? This never happened before, said Jameson. Even though I never saw a flying saucer or a UFO, I do know they exist because they knocked down our missiles, he continued. That just does not happen every day. They're very interested in our nuclear weapons and our methods of delivering nuclear weapons, Jameson added. That's what concerns me. That's why they are here today. Later in the session, Salaz addressed a statement from the recent report delivered to the Office of the Director of National Intelligence. That report revealed that there are more than 140 instances of unidentified aerial phenomenon collected since 2019 by the Navy's UAP task force that probably do not or actually do in fact represent physical objects. This is a pretty startling omission by the Department of Defense, said Salas. I certainly have never seen anything like it before. Former USAF Lieutenant and Missile Test Photographic Officer Robert Jacobs added a very interesting personal story of his own. I was part of a U.S. Air Force cover-up for 17 years, said Jacob. Our duty was to protect and provide coverage for every launch. Jacobs explained, recounting that many of the missiles tests at that time resulted in failures. Many of the missiles blew up on the pad, Jacobs explained, noting that the engineers wanted to be able to review footage of the test to aid in troubleshooting problems with the missiles. Two days after watching and recording a missile until it went out of sight, Jacobs said that he was called to the office of Major Florenz J. Mansman, then the chief science officer at Vanderburg Air Force Base. There were two guys, Jacobs recalled, two men in gray flannel suits, who joined Jacobs and Mansman in the room where a film projector had been set up. After Jacobs described what he and his team had observed, he was asked to sit down and watch the footage of the launch. The most amazing thing happened, Jacobs said, as he recalled watching the missile going through its planned stages. The missile was flying along, going about 8,000 miles an hour. Suddenly, from in the frame, we saw an object come in from the same way we were going, Jacobs explained. This object flew in, it came up to our warhead, and it went around the top of the warhead, fired a beam of light down into the top of the warhead. It went around to the front of the warhead. Remember, we're all traveling at about 8,000 miles an hour here. Fired another beam of light, went down below the warhead, fired another beam of light, went around the way it came, and fired off another beam of light. And then it flew out of the frame, the same way it had come in. At that point, the warhead tumbled out of space, Jacob said. When asked what the object was, Jacobs told his supervisor and superior officers that it looked like they had captured a UFO on film. 
Jacobs was told never to talk about this incident. It was shaped like a flying saucer Jacobs had it. How could such a thing happen? That was up on there that I saw it on the film. We all saw it. What had happened to me was my world changing forever, Jacobs remembered. My worldview changed, but I was under orders to shut up, so I decided to shut up. Part of the U.S. Air Force cover-up, in fact. But now we're free to talk about it since the Pentagon confirmed that these do indeed exist and that they are doing these things to our weapons. Former USAF Captain and Nuclear Missile Crew Commander David Schindel also spoke during the meeting and issued a scathing indictment of the U.S. government and the military when it comes to their handling of UFOs. We are all proud of our integrity, and the Air Force relied on us because of it. However, the Air Force has not been honest with Congress and the American people, said Schindel. The Air Force continues with this proclamation that the UFOs do not exist or pose a threat to national security. I was held hostage to both those lies for about 40 years, and it is past time for the truth to come out and be revealed, he continued. Unparalleled insider access. Get it all. Introducing the SiriusXM Platinum VIP plan. Our newest, most exclusive plan. Listen in two cars, plus stream anywhere with two app logins. Access a massive, exclusive library of live concert video and audio recordings through nugs.net. Have opportunities to experience live and virtual SiriusXM events, including VIP-only exclusives. Get all your questions answered by a dedicated VIP customer care team. Plus, get all the entertainment we've got. It's all included with your Platinum VIP subscription. Be a VIP. Call 844-711-8800 to learn more. Offer detail supply. One login for activated vehicle. Not available in Canada. Well, I asked for it and you provided. I asked you to send me some of the creepiest tales and things you've encountered while being a long-haul trucker. And of course, this episode's all about the strange and the unusual and the paranormal that truckers have encountered through the years while making those long cross-country hauls or even tri-state hauls. What's the creepiest, most paranormal thing you have seen on the road? Uh, for example, thank you, Pirate Freddy, for sending me this. It's maybe a bit off the mark, but it still scared the crap out of me, he says. I was headed west on I-76 in Denver, just cruising along about 70 miles per hour, when out of nowhere I saw a massive, almost solid cloud of what looked to be like dirt coming at me. I'd say it was at least 20 feet wide and 10 feet tall. I scanned ahead of me, but couldn't see any vehicle that it could be coming from. With nowhere to go, I slowed down and took the hit, hoping there wasn't anything big enough in there to come through the windshield or jack up my truck. It was pretty loud as I smashed through it. The instant it hit, I knew it wasn't dirt. I immediately hit the washers because I couldn't see a damn thing through all of the carnage. My windshield was painted with guts. Turns out it was bees, freaking huge bees that sounded like rocks when they hit. I can't even imagine seeing that swarm if I had been walking. They would definitely kill the crap out of anything in their path if someone were to happen upon them on foot. This person named Valor, 592. 
says, I was driving near Las Vegas at around 3 a.m. I had been following a few black SUVs along the highway for a good hour or so. They had Nevada plates that were single digits. The numbers were in order, one, two, and three. Suddenly, they all pulled off the highway down a dirt path. There was no mile marker or cactus that would indicate a path was there. It was just a dirt road. After pulling off the road, they all turned their lights off and didn't stick around. I sure the hell didn't either. It was creepy. Now, I did some research, and according to the DMV of Nevada website, special license plates are issued to a number of Nevada law enforcement agencies and government agencies, state elected officials, and the Nevada congressional delegation. Plate 1 belongs to the Nevada governor, 2 belongs to the lieutenant governor, and so on. There was one story shared directly with me a couple of weeks ago. It was from a person who used to do cross-country trucking. He said he was taking a load from Illinois to California and ended up breaking down in Nevada. Problem was his truck overheated after he sat for an extended long period of time in an auto accident that was behind him. He had to pull off from the off-ramp onto a narrow road that was only a two-lane road for the main highway. And as he put it in park, he got out, turned it off, opened the hood of the truck, made a distress call for someone to come and repair his vehicle, help him while he's on the road. And he's checking everything under the hood, making sure that nothing else is wrong, that there's just no leaking, nothing more serious than just the truck overheating. And he notices something out of the corner of his eye, which was a bright flashing metallic object on the ground a good mile away from him with a tiny beacon light going off. And it was a huge object, but he couldn't make out what it was. He decided, well, I'm stranded here. I'm waiting for someone to come help me and repair my issue. So he started off on foot walking through the the desert field towards this metallic object and as he got so close from behind him two jeeps emerged and in front of him another jeep emerged and a helicopter was seen flying directly over him and the men emerged from the jeep guns drawn explaining to him that he has set foot on government property it was restricted for him to be there and if he were to take another step they have the right to shoot him where he stands So he stopped, complied without question, and they escorted him back to his truck and told him he had to sit in the cab until his help arrived so they could remedy the situation and he could be on his way. He was not allowed to leave the truck until further notice. So he had to sit there and wait, and one of the Jeeps that escorted him back was parked at a distance and continued to sit and watch until his help arrived, remedied his situation with the truck. He was up and running, ready to go, and as he pulled away, the Jeep followed behind him and followed him for another five to ten miles before turning off abruptly into the desert and driving off into the distance. And that was a creepy tale of things that he himself had experienced that I got to hear firsthand from someone who actually lived it. Uh, this is from Coco San. 
Well, I'm not a trucker, but a motorcyclist, which kind of makes it even more spooky. Drove home from my girlfriend's house, just a 20-minute ride, but it was 3 a.m., and the road goes through a forest without any streetlights. So I rode through the forest, already giving everything my little 50ccm dirt bike had in it back then. And suddenly, on the side of the road, a freaking naked mannequin is standing. I saw it appear in my headlights and drove by it, only doing like 60 kilometers an hour. It was scary as hell. There have been a lot of other wacky tales shared with me from people who have been on the long open road, uh, specifically late at night. Point Pleasant, West Virginia comes to mind. I'm sure everyone who has listened to this podcast or has uh, or who has any knowledge of the paranormal and supernatural has heard of the tale of the Mothman of Point Pleasant, West Virginia. But this doesn't have anything to do with the Mothman, this story. A trucker told me while I was visiting Point Pleasant uh, for an extended weekend, uh, he was at a truck stop. He heard I was in town and was looking for me. came to the Mothman Museum while I had a table set up signing books and doing a meet and greet with people before spending the night at the Lafayette Hotel. Uh, he approached me and told me about late one evening when he was driving past the TNT Depot which is on the outskirts of town. Now, keep in mind, Point Pleasant used to be a military town. Uh, One of the very first shots fired during the American Civil War was fired in Point Pleasant on the river between two passing boats. Uh, Point Pleasant's always had strange things surrounding it, a curse placed upon the town by Chief Cornstalk and other strange enigmatic happenings. This story, though, deals with him driving past the TNT Depot late at night. And as he's going past one of the second or third entryways into the swampy area where the stone igloos are set up that house what used to be uh, munitions for military purposes and purposes of war, dynamite and explosives. He is happening upon a clearing and... A bright blue flash comes out of the woods, almost like what you would see from, say, a propane gas explosion. But it was just a concentrated blue flash, like a blue flame. And he sees it, and then it dissipates. And coming from that blue flash is the mythological Greek beast known as a centaur, which they also exist in the Harry Potter world. The centaur emerges from the woods from one point to another and stops dead in his tracks and stares him down, which leads him to apply his brakes, and he stops. The headlights of his vehicle illuminate this thing even better, and it just stares at him, kind of nods its head back, and then continues on across the street or the road and back into that part of the woods, and another blue flash emerges from the darkness and engulfs this thing, and it disappears. He said he had not touched a drop of alcohol in maybe 15 years, and had never messed with drugs except uppers when he was doing long-distance trucking, and he hadn't touched those in more than 10 years. He said that he had a dry belly, no alcohol in his system, 
but this encounter led him to start drinking again because it almost drove him crazy. He pulled off to the side of the road, put his signal flashers on, and curled up into a ball. He did not know what he had just encountered, seen, or if it was going to come back. Now, this leads me to believe that Point Pleasant may be some sort of a like a paradox of an opening, per se, between worlds, where variants and doppelgangers and alternate realities exist and overlap each other. And sometimes these windows overlap and they're left open, and things from other worlds pass through our own and then back into their world. This also correlates well with the theory that many cryptozoologists or astrophysicists when studying cryptozoology or reading about it, talking about it mention in regards to Sasquatch, Bigfoot, that they are interdimensional beings that the reason they've not been captured in our reality is because they slide in and out of alternate realities they pop into our reality, poke around a bit, they get seen they see us they warn us to stay away then, poop, they're back into their own little world. Simple theory. Kind of cool. It's plausible. But that's one story in particular. Revolving around Point Pleasant and the TNT munitions depots where Mothman was originally sighted in the late 1960s. Another strange tale shared with me is the tale of the trucker's widow... And this is something that many truckers have shared, this story. And they're identical with the way they're shared. And this is from people who are from different walks of life, who are traveling different highways in different states at different times of the year. They encounter a woman in Victorian clothing who waves to them and warns to them, warns them to slow down or stop or watch out for this curve, so on and so forth. They almost always after seeing her come close to death whether it be them nodding off and falling asleep while driving or getting caught in a storm the trucker's widow often guides them to safety or gets them to stop before they become harmed story goes with the trucker's widow a long distance traveler before the days of trucks uh, was seriously injured in an accident and the woman died from a heartache. Her heart gave out. And it's sort of been her lot in the afterlife to warn other truckers to be careful, to pay attention, to slow down, to watch out for a boulder in the road or boulders are going to fall or this sign is knocked over, there's a curve ahead, you're going too fast, the roads are wet, there's ice. She seems to pop up in front of you, behind you, or on your truck warning you, waving to you, trying to get your attention so you slow down and you don't die. One trucker in particular has shared this story with me, and he has encountered the trucker's widow on three separate occurrences at three different points in his life in three different states. And it's always the same. She's in a Victorian-type dress. Her hair is up in pins, and she's waving to you. She's warning you. Or she's even attached to the back of the truck and waving at you. And the brake lights are reflecting her and lighting her up for you to see in your side mirror. 
just a little fun tale to share. I don't know if all the truckers that will be listening to this episode of Paranormally Speaking have encountered their own version of the trucker's widow. Please hold for an important message from one of my sponsors. Ghosts, aliens, UFOs, Bigfoot, parallel universes, angels and demons, time travel, cryptozoology, and so much more within the realm of the unexplained, the strange, and the out of this world. I'm your host, Neil Parks, award-winning author, screenwriter, researcher, and paranormal professional. Join me every week as I tackle hot-button topics within the paranormal realm. I'll share personal accounts, my research, and secondhand evidence. I will read excerpts and stories from my books and discuss my upcoming projects in the literary world. Documentaries, both on TV and the big screen, plus my independent film projects. Paranormally Speaking is both thought-provoking and entertaining. New episodes drop every Thursday. Tune in to Paranormally Speaking and prepare to be enlightened. Thank you for sticking around this long. Archaeologists uncover 20,000-year-old UFO wreckage near Site C. The discovery of a millennia-old UFO wreckage site in the Peace River Valley is proof that this region was used as an interplanetary runway, archaeologists said. The find also raises new questions about early life in the Peace region and the future of the controversial Site C hydroelectric project runway it's currently under construction in the valley archaeologists working in the forest along the peace river found the wreckage upstream from site c construction site near bear flat earlier that week the area is being studied ahead of reservoir logging works laboratory tests confirm the metal found at the wreckage dates back at least twenty thousand years team lead Levi Lazarus said in a press op conference this exciting discovery raises new questions about our understanding of the history of the peace region Lazarus said we've always known the peace region has been a highway for indigenous populations for centuries what we must answer now is what interest intergalactic visitors had in the river and this region Lazarus said the discovery is proof the river was used, at the very least, as an interplanetary runway. He would not speculate on how the spacecraft crashed. A search for any life form or life forms at the wreckage site is underway, he said. Previous archaeological work has uncovered hundreds of sites along the river valley filled with pieces of chert, a flaky obsidian-like rock used by region's early residents for tool making. Some of the arrowheads tested positive for buffalo DNA, additional evidence that the Peace River Valley was a trading hub for plains and coastal First Nations and had been dated back 10,000 years. Lynn and Marlene Bone, who have homesteaded the valley since the 1940s and are ardent opponents of the Sicey Project, said that out-of-this-world discovery is further proof that the Peace River should be given protected status and called again for the immediate halt to the dam's construction. We call on the Premier and her energy minister to finally do the right thing, said Lenbone. It's one thing to run rockshod over our fellow First Nations brethren and homesteaders, however. It's another matter entirely to do the same now 
to inter interplanetary Perry Pilgrims. Officials with the Planetary Peace Commission, based in Dawson Creek, said the aliens likely came to the region to escape religious persecution of their home planet. And because of the valley's rich archaeological and agricultural capabilities. I'm not sure how they would know that they were escaping religious persecution, so on and so forth. It's a bit of an outside-of-the-box hunch. We've known about the existence of foreign life forms in this region for decades, says PPC President Herb Wild. BC Hydra, which is undertaking the construction of the $9 billion Site C project, say it is working with the local museum in Fort St. John to preserve and display these alien artifacts once quarantined and researched. We are surprised and delighted, as everyone would be about this find, said Site C spokesperson Dan Calloway. However, it will not slow down our construction timetable. The project remains on time and on budget. Premier Crystal Lark and Energy Minister Bull Benetton could not be immediately reached for comment. A team of researchers from Roswell, accompanied by Canadian military personnel and local archaeologists, will continue their work over the coming months. Lazarus did not want to weigh in on the political implications of the discovery. However, he hopes the site will open to the public later this summer. We are just getting started, Lazarus said. The truth is definitely out there. Available to order now, my first audiobook, Neil Parks Presents Truly Terrifying Tales, narrated by me. It's ready to order and download on bandcamp.com. My other books, of course, are always available to order on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and lulu.com. You can also order t-shirts that I designed that I normally sell at conventions, festivals, lectures, and my book signings. I always have the 9-inch tall 3D printed Bigfoot silhouettes available, and last spring my first children's book was released. It was written by my good friend and fellow author R.L. Walker. I illustrated this book, and it was a major shift in gears for me, considering that my writing and art style has always been dark and scary. To order any of what I just mentioned, you can also go to my email, which is parksparanormal at gmail.com. That is parksparanormal at gmail.com. Standing by. Leaping lizards, tales of lizard people and strange conspiracy theories revolving around subterranean creatures that are lizard-human-hybrid-alien shapeshifters. The stories change through every decade, through every person who's telling it, through every sci-fi author who's drafting a story around it. A shred of truth could come from Fort Moore Hill. Like most conspiracy theories, this story has a footing and a definable fact, or at least in other local legends based on reasonable shreds of truth. It also has a basis in the myth of Los Angeles itself as the land of get-rich-quick schemes. Fantasies of L.A.'s time as a remote Spanish and Mexican outpost flourished in the late 19th and early 20th centuries as city boosters played up a romanticized version of the city. These boosters took great liberties in describing the city and in telling its history and their attempts to sell Los Angeles to the rest of the country.
In this heady atmosphere, it is not surprising that stories of hidden Spanish gold and lost riches buried in the hills grew popular. Fort Moore Hill, easily accessible and heavily populated, became ground zero for these legends. Persistent rumors and of a treasure buried in the Protestant cemetery beneath the headstone of old man Wilson and his wife. It led to their grave being desecrated repeatedly in 1891. A man named J.S. Burner watched three Spanish men digging in the cemetery until midnight, looking for treasure supposedly hidden by American soldiers. Schulfeldt's lizard people were not the humanoid reptilian aliens popularized by conspiracy theorists like David Icke. Rather, they were a race of exceptional human beings who worshipped the lizard as a symbol of long life and laid out their underground labyrinth in the shape of their favorite reptile. This is what gives us the legend of the California lizard men. In 1902, an elderly woman allegedly drew a map leading to treasure she claimed had been buried in Fort Moore Hill decades earlier. After her death, a friend entrusted with the map hired a man with a dining rod to find the treasure a group of volunteers dug all night by candlelight at a spot near the Protestant cemetery fence, finally stopping when they hit an abandoned drain. By the time Schulfeldt came along, Depression-era Los Angeles had been primed for half a century to believe that there was more to be discovered under Fort Moore Hill. Originally from Ohio, Schulfeldt had managed mining sites for the Kingman Merger Mines companies in Arizona. He was also the inventor of a radio gold finding machine, which the Los Angeles Times derivesly called a doodle bug in 1934. It also appears to have been much like a dowsing rod, a dubious instrument loved by conspiracy theorists everywhere. One reporter described the machine as a cylindrical glass case inside which a plummet attached to a copper wire held by the engineer sways continually pointing towards minerals or tunnels below the surface of the ground. It was also believed to be some sort of an ancient communicator between subterranean reptilian shape-shifting aliens. In 1933, Schulfeldt made Fort Moore Hill newsworthy once more. He claimed to possess an ancient sheepskin map which showed the way to treasure located under the old run-down hill now slowly being dismantled in the name of progress. He conceived the county board and convinced them of the supervisors to let him dig for the treasure and the two parties agreed they would split anything that they had uncovered, the riches being 50-50. By March 3rd, 1933, a 22-foot shaft had been sunk into the backyard of the once Grand Mills Mansion, which had recently been condemned by the city and stood almost directly over the Broadway Tunnel. With all the romantic markings of treasure maps, crosses, mysterious symbols, and figures, the Los Angeles Times reported on the 5th of March, 1933, the ancient scroll was consulted from time to time as the workmen bored into the sidewall of the shaft. On March 9th, 
Schaffelt's machine was finally lowered into the shaft. Despite all the excitement, nothing was ever found. A few months later, Schaffelt reemerged. This time, he presented a more elaborate backstory along with a hand-drawn map that still exists to this day. His claims were covered in detail by the Los Angeles Times on January 29, 1934. It is important to note that without the article, the legend of the lizard people of Los Angeles would almost certainly not exist. In the lengthy feature, Schulfeld claimed his X-ray radio had led him to hither and yawn from the Central Library downtown to the Southwest Museum at the base of Mount Washington. I knew I was over a pattern of tunnels, he told the Times in 1934 and I had mapped out the course of the tunnels, the position of large rooms scattered along the tunnel route, as well as the positions of deposits of gold, but I couldn't understand the meaning of all of it. My radio x-ray pictures of tunnels and rooms, which are subsurface voids, and gold pictures with perfect corners, sides and ends, are scientific proof of their existence. However, the legendary story must remain speculative until unearthed by an actual excavation sometime down the future. The legend continues. Over the decades, as the legend of the lizard people was popularized by conspiracy theory sites and conflated with Ike's alien reptoids, Fort Moorhill shrunk as it was hacked away bodies from the Protestant cemetery which the city claimed to be to have been moved were discovered but no golden tablets were ever found but the legend of the lizard people lives on if you were an LA native tour guide historian or even an uber driver you've no doubt been asked about it time and time again people from Los Angeles can't get enough of Schulfeld's old and odd fiction and its promises of gold riches and infinite knowledge from a supreme alien race of reptoid shapeshifters. What can you say about L.A., Hempstead says. We love cults and conspiracy theories and astrology and any kind of weirdo fringe belief. Once you get the reputation for being a city of weirdos, it becomes a self-fulfilling prophecy. Please hold for an important message from one of my sponsors. Like QAnon's Capitol rioters, the Nashville bombers' lizard people theory is deadly serious. The deadly Capitol siege from last year was fueled by far-out conspiracy theorists, including Ashley Babbitt, a QAnon supporter fatally shot by police as she tried to breach a barricaded doorway. Meanwhile, federal investigators are still looking into the belief system of QAnon Quinn Warner, who made statements about a conspiracy of lizard people taking over the planet before the explosion that damaged 41 buildings and injured three people in Nashville, Tennessee on Christmas Day of 2020. The notion of shape-shifting, blood-sucking reptilian humanoids invading Earth to control the human race sounds like a cheesy sci-fi plot. The notion of shape-shifting, blood-sucking reptilian humanoids does sound like a sci-fi plot, but it's actually a very old trope 
with disturbing links to anti-immigration and anti-Semitic hostilities dating to the 19th century. Bonkers? Sure. Harmless? Definitely not. Law enforcement sources say Warner's writings indicate his interest in a number of conspiracy theories, including the lizard people takeover. He may even have had a pastime of hunting such aliens in the park before the blast. Warner sent packages to friends filled with material expounding on his bizarre worldview. They included a letter that began, Hey dude, you will never believe what I found in the park. The world ruled by lizard people fantasy shot to prominence in recent years, in part through uh, the ramblings of David Icke, a popular British sports reporter turned conspiracy theorist known for his eccentric ideas. Icke would have you believe that a race of reptilian beings not only invaded Earth, but that it is also creating genetically modified lizard-human hybrid races called the Babylonian Brotherhood, which he maintains is busy plotting a worldwide fascist state under the disguise of the Democratic Party. This sinister cabal of global reptilian elites boasts a membership list including former President Barack Obama, Queen Elizabeth II of Great Britain, former Federal Reserve Chairman Alan Greenspan, and Mick Jagger. This nonsense is espoused by a variety of internet conspiracy mongers, including far-right Trump-loving QAnon adherents, one of whom was accused in 2019 of murdering his own brother because he thought that he was a lizard. As many as 12 million Americans believe in this lizard people conspiracy. And in 2013, public policy polling survey it's safe to assume the number is much higher as of today. The outlandish trope has roots in the second half of the 19th century, when the Industrial Revolution, Darwin's theory of evolution, and rapid scientific advances upended time-honored traditional ways of life, leaving people unsettled and unsure what to believe. It emerged more strongly toward the end of the century, when anxieties about perceived outsiders, especially Jews, were fueled by waves of immigrants flooding urban centers in Great Britain and the United States in search of economic prosperity and religious freedom. The tide of immigrants ignited cultural conflicts as well as health and sanitation crises in cities that lacked adequate infrastructure for millions of its arrivals. Amid the colorful array of gurus and charismatic figures arriving on the scene claiming secret knowledge of world affairs and answers to burning questions, the writings of the Russian-born mystic Helen Blavinsky, the founder of Theosophy, Brittle and Cosmic Energies and Mysterious Knowledge, including her claim of an ancient race of dragon men from a lost continent mentioned in her 1888 tome, The Secret Doctrine. Bram Stoker's Dracula in 1897, the tale of Romanian vampire who plans to take over London using his renowned shape-shifting abilities also carries traces of this trope. The Count possesses a number of reptilian qualities, 
from his association with the knightly order of the dragon, from which his name derives, to his cold-blooded nature and talent for shimmying down walls in lizard-like fashion. Dracula's protruding teeth, pointed ears, and blood-sucking habits mark him as a species apart, a motif of othering, read by some critics as code for Jewishness. From his perspective, Stoker's book is part of the British response to the increasing numbers of Jewish immigrants arriving from Eastern Europe. The vampire is a stealthy invader, passing a proper citizen, but secretly plotting domination and destruction. Bloodsucking, as Stephanie Winkler observes, is a common metaphor for greed, a trait often linked to Anglo-Jews associated with banking and stock trading. This coupling of Jewishness and greedy bloodsucking gained momentum as wealthy British Jews such as banker Baron Lionel de Rothschild, who was admitted to the House of Commons in 1858, gained influence in society, eventually paranoia that Jews, through their financial powers and connections to royalty, would seize the opportunity to take over an empire facing ever more complex challenges helped drive the mounting anti-Semitism. Does any of this sound familiar? It should because today's internet postings by conspiracy theorists often carry traces of just this sort of anti-immigrant, anti-Semitic tensions that show up in history whenever segments of the population feel betrayed by the elites, quote-unquote, and the fear of loss of their own social and economic status. It may not surprise you that Ike, who wrote a theosocial work about the origins of Earth, also endorses the infamous anti-Semitic forgery, the Protocols of the Elders of Zion, which appeared in the 1903 writings and was likely created by the Russian Tsar's secret police. Henry Ford, for one, helped circulate that pamphlet, which purported to reveal a secret Jewish society conspiring to control the banks, the media, and ultimately the entire earth. Though it was quickly discredited, the Nazis used it as part of their propaganda. The lizard takeover with its Jewish cabal links has unfortunately become so commonplace that it even made an appearance in the Netflix hit series, The Umbrella Academy now taking some heat for its alleged use of anti-Semitic tropes in the form of a shadowy society of lizard people who run the world, complete with a Yiddish-speaking villain. History shows that when panic is rising, institutions seem to be failing and the masses feel betrayed by wealthy elitists. Finding scapegoats can seem alluring if charismatic influencers are able to channel the grievances towards secret cabals, immigrants and religious groups, eventually something terrible is likely to happen. Fantastic. Roswell, UFOs, flying saucers, alien abduction, are we alone? Information regarding this and many other questions about the unknown are only a click away at www.theufostore.com. Theufostore.com offers hundreds of DVDs about UFOs, aliens, crop circles, conspiracies, Bigfoot, suppressed science, 
Ancient Mysteries. Log on to www.theufostore.com and request a free UFO Store catalog. Theufostore.com, the largest selection of UFO products on the Internet. Imagine no longer being tied down to your computer, but having the freedom to take live talk radio with you anywhere you go. TalkStream Live introduces our first ever iPhone application. The talk shows you follow now follow you. And your iPhone is now the fastest and easiest way to stay connected to the best talk radio on the Internet. Listen to live talk shows 24 hours a day, 7 days a week. Mobile talk radio from TalkStream Live. Now available in the iTunes App Store. That's terrific. Atlantis, aliens, and time warps, the enduring mystery of the Bermuda Triangle. Now, rogue waves could be responsible for some of the region's most notorious vanishings, but that won't stop rumors about Atlantis with aliens and time warps. The Bermuda Triangle is one of the most feared regions on the globe. Thanks to wild rumors about it, all the ill-fated vessels that have entered it never to be seen again, the fate of these ships and planes are often pinned on supernatural events that exist within, quote-unquote, the Devil's Triangle, which is normally defined as roughly 500,000 square miles of ocean between the verticals of Miami, Puerto Rico, and Bermuda. Scientists have debunked the notion that these waters are particularly bloodthirsty, repeatedly pointing out that it's really not that weird for vehicles to go missing in one of the stormiest and busiest regions of the ocean, where hazardous shallows and reefs happen to be common. According to the U.S. Coast Guard and U.S. Navy, the Triangle does not claim an unusual amount of lives compared with other volatile, heavily trafficked areas. The real mystery of the Bermuda Triangle, Bermuda Triangle has much more to do with the persistence and longevity of popular conspiracy theories surrounding it. People project their worst nightmares and wildest fantasies onto this patch of ocean crediting its disappearances to aliens, UFO abductions, time portals, the lost civilization of Atlantis, and countless other paranormal causes. Even in 2018, this narrative tradition is still going very strong. It is now 2021, and director Sam Raimi is currently working on a Bermuda Triangle film that will feature sharks, Vikings, and Nazis, according to Screen Rant. To be fair to the truthers, their far-fetched explanations are rooted in reality, at least insofar as there are real vessels that really went missing in the Bermuda Triangle. Scrolling through the number of deadly incidents within the region does not tend to raise one's hackles. Ships and their crews vanished without a trace in the Triangle throughout the 1800s, and others were found mysteriously abandoned, like the tall mast ship Rosalie, which was recovered in 1840. The only crew member that remained on board was a canary, but it did not relate its experiences, unfortunately. The disappearance of the USS Cyclops in 1918, along with its 306 crew members and passengers, marked the largest loss of life in U.S. naval history, not related to combat. Understandably, it added significant weight to concerns about the region. But it wasn't until a series of tragedies occurring in the 1940s that the general American tradition of maritime ghost stories found a resonant focal point in the Bermuda Triangle. In addition to the loss of the two Cyclops sister ships, 
the USS Neuros, and the USS Protus within the region. The 1940s were punctuated by a series of high-profile airplane disappearances in the area, UFO interactions, and strange storm swells. The vanishing of Flight 19 in 1945 was made especially famous when an amphibious rescue plane sent to search for the wreckage also disappeared without a trace. In 1950, Miami reporter Edward Van Winkle Jones outlined some of the region's incidents. In an Associated Press article, another writer, George X. Sand, picked up his thread in 1952 in an editorial called The Sea Mystery at Our Back Door in Fate magazine, in which he laid out the geographic dimensions of the triangle. That same year, reporter Alan Eckert covered various plane disappearances, including Flight 19 for American Legion. He added the extraterrestrial dimension that would become central to its current incarnation by circulating a rumor that the planes, missing planes flew off to Mars. But the, true, the truth of the region's modern mythos was author Vincent Gaddis, who coined and popularized the term Bermuda Triangle in a 1964 article titled The Deadly Bermuda Triangle. Gaddis had a knack for peddling pseudoscience in addition to his founding role in mytho the mythology of the triangle. He also pumped up urban legends about spontaneous combustion. A conspiratorial power keg had been lit despite the best efforts of scientists and skeptics to extinguish it with facts during the past five decades. It still burns bright and hot today. If anything, given the resurgence of the pseudoscience in the online age, we might expect even wilder manifestations of Bermuda Triangle lore to surface from the deepest, weirdest corners of the internet. Just a couple of years ago, rumors were circulating about an alien spaceship discovered on the Triangle seafloor, for instance. So uh, no matter how many people blame the region's disappearances on everything from time-warped Nazis to Chikulu, the Bermuda Triangle is not a geographical boogeyman. It's a truly scary place, but for the pedestrian reason that its topography is treacherous, its storms are severe, and it's packed with vehicles servicing some of the busiest ports in America. Now playing one of the biggest podcasts of the week on the free iHeartRadio app. Now number one for podcasting. For generations, conspiracy theorists and UFOologists have claimed that there is a secret base underneath the Archuleta Mesa and Dulce, New Mexico, where the military work alongside aliens and even experiment on humans. Today I'm going to be diving inside the Dulce alien base, the terrifying stories surrounding the underground base in New Mexico. The tiny hamlet of Dulce, New Mexico has less than 3,000 residents, virtually off grid this small community has been a hotbed for alien conspiracy theorists and ufologists for years many believing that hidden beneath the mesa is a top secret seven-story military facility that is known today as the dulce base dulce is mainly inhabited by indigenous people and is the headquarters of the jacarila apache reservation of northern new mexico despite its population 
The area draws a large amount of tourists from around the world. A group of UFOologists host an annual Dose Base UFO conference. Although rumors about an underground alien base operating around Dulce have been strong for years, it is important to note that the existence of the supposed facility is entirely unproven, even though the reports and stories surrounding it are extremely well documented. Stories started coming to light in the mid-1970s when Gabriel Valdez, a New Mexico state trooper, reported a number of disturbing cattle mutilations. Valdez even went as far as claiming he witnessed a sophisticated spacecraft in the Dulce skies, close to where the Dulce base is said to be situated. He is also, he has said to have found a mutilated cow that had a dead fetus inside of it. However, he made the horrifying claim that this was no unborn calf. He said that it appeared to be as though it was some form of hybrid that looked like a human, a monkey and a frog. Debris that was left surrounding the cattle mutilations gave Valdez the impression that the government was involved in this somehow. The evidence that was left there, you know, predators don't leave a gas mask, glow sticks, radar chaff, Valdez said. They just don't leave that stuff. Michael Barkin, a political scientist, said that cattle mutilations appear frequently following on from nearby UFO sightings. Now, I myself had an experience in Kentucky and West Virginia between the years of 93 and 96, where I was well acquainted with a couple of farmers who knew my uncle at that time very well. And he knew that I had a newsletter that I was doing called the, uh, the Silent Bullet, which later became the Realm of Conspiracy. And I was diving deep into cattle mutilations, crop formations, so on and so forth. And I made connections with these farmers who had cattle show up in their fields, disappear for a while, then show up completely out of nowhere, not even in an area where they should have been to begin with, and mutilated with laser-like precision. He also added that the Colorado-New Mexican border region had become a hotbed for both UFO sightings and cattle mutilations. Reports of these were during the, the early 1980s. These claims made by Valdez gathered a lot of interest from all over the globe. A physicist and businessman by the name of Paul Benowitz allegedly intercepted electronic signals in Dulce that he claimed were emanating from deep down below the surface and directed at a target that was too high for any human activity. With a national and even global interest growing in cattle mutilations, UFO sightings, and bold claims of unexplainable electronic signals, the Dulce base legend was born. In 1982, Benowitz made claim that the base existed and then went on to publish a paper titled Project Beta in 1988, detailing the best way to infiltrate the facility. In May of 1990, John Lear, former pilot government employee and the son of the inventor of the Lear jet made the claim that he had gathered four independent confirmations that the seven-story Dulce base was in fact real and certainly did exist. Due to his credentials, many people gave credence to his claims. He even went as far as to detail the different species of aliens who he said had visited Earth. Now, John Lear has claimed that there are over 70 different species of aliens that we currently know about. The next huge claim comes from Phil Schneider, 
who claimed to be a former government employee and explosives expert. Schneider claimed that he was involved in the construction of the Dulce base. Schneider made several public presentations about underground bases and laid many claims to the governments working alongside aliens. His most famous statement came in a presentation in 1995 in which he alleged that the that during the initial construction stages of the Dulce base, the military encountered alien beings already beneath the ground. Not only did he claim to have seen the beings with his own eyes, he said that he was caught up in a firefight between soldiers and alien life forms that were already in subterranean tunnels. During the chaos, he reported that he lost several fingers and suffered severe burns. Schneider said that the U.S. government and alien entities entered into a peace agreement. Schneider claimed that approximately 60 U.S. military personnel were killed in this apparent firefight between below the desert, none of what he said has ever been proven. However, he does have a lot of credibility throughout the UFO research community. He died in 1996 by a reported suicide. Many people believe he was murdered to ensure that he would remain silent. There have been many illustrations released of reported layout of the Dulce Base. Many UFO researchers are certain that the Dulce Base has seven stories and spans two miles under the ground, each level more secure and more secretive than the level above. It is reported that each level of the base is designed for a specific type of research, ranging from mind control on humans to genetic experimentation between alien and humans, it is claimed that two species of alien, the greys and the reptilians, have their own separate housing within the Dulce base. Nightmare Hall, as it has been named, is said to be the sixth floor and is host to some of the most terrifying stories about what goes on in the Dulce base. It is here, Nightmare Hall, that allegedly is filled with the screams of human victims that are being experimented on. Schneider claimed that although the Dulce base is a huge complex, he stated that he was merely one of the other 129 secret underground facilities of its kind that are scattered around the United States. Schneider also claimed that the United States spends, on average, between 50 and 80 billion per year on a so-called black budget that covered the costs of these underground alien facilities. What are your thoughts on the Dulce base? Let me know through email at parksparanormal.com gmail.com or you can always hop on google look up neil parks and find me on facebook i have several pages not only just for my books but for my research team my own independent research and uh, personal contact please hold for an important message from our sponsor Hey guys, good news. The outrageously expensive little blue pill is now generic, which means you can get the prescription medication to treat ED at affordable prices. And Hems makes it extra affordable. You pay just 30 bucks for a month's supply. And right now, get your first online doctor's visit totally free when you go to 4hems.com slash good. That's right, free, zero copay, no expensive appointments, no awkward face-to-face conversations to get your prescription. Hims connects you to doctors online who can evaluate you and, if appropriate, prescribe your ED medication. And a pharmacy sends it right to your door.
Hims makes it affordable, private, and incredibly easy. Nobody likes dealing with ED. Now, thanks to Hims, nobody has to. And that's really good news. To start your free online visit, you need to go to this exclusive address, forhims.com slash good. That's forhims.com slash good for your free online visit. F-O-R-H-I-M-S dot com slash good. Family is big around here. We're family owned, family operated, family managed. And that means legacy. That means dependability. That means using Granger. With over 1.5 million products and knowledgeable product experts, Granger has whatever we need. And with same day pickup and next day delivery options, they have it whenever we need it. For over 90 years, businesses like ours have trusted Granger. Because, like family, Granger's got our back. Call, clickgranger.com, or stop by to see for yourself. Granger, for the ones who get it done. We are getting closer and closer to actually living out the warning that we received from. The premise of the movie, Terminator 2, Judgment Day. Xenobots. This is what I'm covering next. I'm going to be discussing Xenobots. Scientists build the first ever living robots that can reproduce. AI designed Xenobots reveal entirely new form of biological self-replication, promising for, get this, regenerative regenerative medicine to regenerate organs, body parts, cells. That's great if that's all they're doing, but you know it's going to go further than that. You know the wrong people are going to get their hands on this. The wrong ideas are going to come out of it. To persist, life must reproduce. Over billions of years, organisms have involved in many ways of replicating from budding plants to sexual animals to invading viruses. Now scientists have discovered an entirely new form of biological reproduction and applied their discovery to create the first ever self-replicating living robots. The same team that built the first living robots, Xenobots, assembled from frog cells, reported in 2020. 2020 is definitely going to be a year that will forever live in infamy. At that time, they discovered that these computer-designed and hand-assembled organisms can swim out of their tiny dish, find single cells, gather hundreds of them together, and assemble baby xenobots inside their Pac-Man-shaped mouths. That a few days later become new xenobots that look and move just like themselves. And then these new xenobots can go out, find cells, and build copies of themselves again and again. With the right design, they will spontaneously self-replicate, says Joshua Bongard, a computer scientist and robotics expert at the University of Vermont, who co-led the new research. The results of the new research were published November 29, 2021, in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Journeying into the unknown, and a xenophus Lavius frog, these embryonic cells would develop into skin. They would be sitting on the outside of a tadpole, keeping out pathogens and redistributing mucus, says Michael Levin, a professor of biology and director of the Allen Discovery Center at Tufts University and co-leader of the new research. But we're putting them in a novel context. We're giving them a chance to reimagine their multiple cell 
your arity, and that they imagine in something far different than skin. People have thought for quite a long time that we've worked out all the ways that life can reproduce and replicate, but this is something that's never been observed before, says co-author Douglas Blackiston, the senior scientist at Tufts University who assembled the xenobot parents and developed the biological portion of this new study. We've discovered that there is this previously unknown space within organisms or living systems, and it's a vast space, said Josh Bungard. These are frog cells replicating in a way that is very different from how frog cells do it naturally. No animal or plant known to science replicates in this way, says Sam Kragman, the lead author in the new study who completed his PhD in Bungard's lab at the University of Vermont and is now a postdoctoral researcher at Tufts Allen Center and Harvard University's Weiss Institute for Biological-Inspired Engineering. This is profound, says Levin. These cells have the genome of a frog, but freed from becoming tadpoles. They use their collective intelligence, a plasticity, to do something astounding. In earlier experiments, the scientists were amazed that xenobots could be designed to achieve simple tasks. Now they are stunned that these biological objects, a computer-designed collection of cells, will spontaneously replicate. We have full, unaltered frog genomes, says Levin. But it gave no hint that these cells can work together on this new task of gathering that these compressing separated cells into work self-copies. On its own, the xenobot parent, made of some 3,000 cells, from a sphere and then it forms these can make children but then the system normally dies out after that it's very hard actually to get the system to keep reproducing says Kragman. but with an artificial intelligence program working on the deep green supercomputer cluster at uvm's vermont advanced computing core an evolutionary algorithm was able to test the billions of body shapes in simulation triangles, squares, pyramids, starfish, to find ones that allowed the cells to be more effective at the motion-based kinetic replication reported in the new research. We asked the supercomputer at UVM to figure out how to adjust the shape of the initial parents, and the AI came up with some strange designs after months of chugging away, including one that resembled Pac-Man, says Kreigman. It's very non-intuitive. It looks very simple, but it's not something a human engineer would come up with on their own. Why one tiny mouth? Why not five? We see the results. We sent the results to Doug, and he built these Pac-Man-shaped parent xenobots. Then those parents built children who built grandchildren who built great-grandchildren in a matter of days, who then have gone on to build great-great-grandchildren, robotic grandchildren. In other words, the right design greatly extended the number of generations in just a matter of weeks. Replication is well known at the level of molecules, but it has never been observed before at the scale of whole cells or organisms. 
we've discovered that there is this previously unknown space within organisms or living systems, and it's a vast space, says Bungard, a professor at UVM's College of Engineering and Mathematical Sciences. How do we then go about exploring that space? We found xenobots that walk. We found xenobots that swim. And now, in this study, we found xenobots that replicate. What else is out there? Or, as the scientists write, in the proceedings of the National Academy of Science Studies, life harbors surprising behaviors just below the surface, waiting to be uncovered. In response to the risk, some people may find this exhilarating, others may react with concern or even terror to the notion of self-replicating biotechnological robots. For the team of scientists, the goal is deeper, deeper into the understanding. We are working to understand this property. Great timing. You should have understood it before you allowed it to self-replicate. The replication process, the world and the technologies are rapidly changing. It's important for society as a whole that we study and understand how this works, says Bongard. These multimeter-sized living machines, entirely contained in a laboratory, easily extinguished and vetted by federal, state, and institutional ethics experts, are now what keep me awake at night. What presents risks in the next pandemic, accelerating ecosystem damage from pollution, and intensifying threats from climate change, says UVM's Bungard. This is an ideal system in which to study self-replicating systems. We have a moral and penetrative ability to understand the conditions under which we can control them, direct them, douse them, and exaggerate it. The team sees promise in the research for advancements towards regenerative medicine and if we knew how to tell collections of cells to do what we wanted them to do, ultimately, that's regenerative, regenerative medicine. That's the solution to traumatic brain injury, birth defects, cancer, and aging. All these different problems. And they're here because we don't know how to predict and control what groups of cells are going to build. Xenobots are a new platform, and they are teaching us a lot. Thank you for coming back for more Inside the Haunted Prison of the Shawshank Redemption. Stand in front of the Ohio State Reformatory today, and you might have a hard time believing it once operated as a maximum security prison. With its soaring French chateau-like spires, intricate brickwork, and stained glass windows, the late 19th century building looks more like a grand hotel that once housed the rich and famous. But walk through its long institutional hallways, past the massive cells with their rusting barred doors and dirty shagging bunks. And you might just recall the bleak, hopeless prison of the 1994 film, The Shawshank Redemption. It was shot there in 1993 and celebrating its 30th anniversary next year. Starring Tim Robbins and Morgan Freeman, the movie followed a man falsely convicted of murder on his decades-long quest for freedom and redemption. 
as you stroll the reformatory's corridors, you might think you hear the clanking of cell doors and prisoners' cries as well. For believers, the former prison in the city of Mansfield, Ohio, is one of the most haunted spots in the United States. It's a place where the ghosts of abused inmates and staff with heavily consciences roam the halls and moving equipment and slamming doors. Indeed, even without ghosts, the building's crumbling walls, peeling paint, and cracking windows are eerie enough to provoke chills. The building opened in 1896 with the goal of offering young male nonviolent first-time offenders the chance of rehabilitation, rather than condemning them to the state penitentiary and Columbus. The community was so proud of its new progressive institution that the local Rickland Shield and Banner newspaper declared the brown breaking Mansfield's greatest day, lauding the reformatory for its steps towards prison reform. There was a charter school on the grounds, and inmates were trained in everything from woodwork to farming, said Ron Puff, one of the reformatory's head tour guides. They even produced their own food. At first, rates among former inmates were as low as 10% to 15%, Puff said. But laws changed and that system fell apart and it became more of a standard prison over time. In the 1970s, in fact, the reformatory was declared a maximum security prison and it developed a reputation for what activists called brutalizing inhumane conditions. The hole made famous by the Shawshank Redemption was based on a real place, an area where inmates were deemed in need of more severe punishment, were placed in solitary confinement and made to sleep on concrete floors. Today, you can climb down into the guts of the reformatory and visit the legendary hole. Even years after the last prisoner left, it invokes a cold, dark horror. When the reformatory finally ceased operation in 1990, after decades of protests, Ohio state officials wanted to tear it down. But before that could happen, Shawshank location scouts took an interest in the building, drawn to its architecture. A combination of Victorian Gothic, Richardson, Romanac, and Queen Anne that includes high arched windows and elegant turrets. It was because of Shawshank, Puff said, that the building was spared. Fortunately, after the movie was made, preservationists were able to talk to the state who determined that the front half of the building containing cell blocks and the administration area would not be torn down. A cottage tourism industry has sprung up around the film and it reaches well beyond the former prison in and around Mansfield. You can follow a dedicated Shawshank trail to see Brooks Halfway House, the old oak tree where Andy buried his fortune, and the woods where the movie's opening scene, Andy sat in the car clutching a revolver. But at the center of it, of course, is the Ohio State Reformatory and its long history. You don't find buildings built this way anymore especially prisons, Puff said. So preservationists' goals was to save and preserve this site and the history of reform. They wanted people to remember 
that we had going here in Mansfield at that point. In fact, these days, several of the Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society tour guides are former inmates. One of them was there in the 1960s, Puff said, and another was there in the 1980s. So their tours are a little different because they were in the same cell blocks, but under different laws. They can give the history better than most. Walking through the bleak cell blocks with someone who once lived there offers a powerful reminder of the building's past. But now, when the darkness and whispers of restless spirits become too much, visitors can do what prisoners could not, stroll right out of the front doors. The reformatory is open to the public, normally from April to September, offering self-guided overnight ghost hunts and guided tours. The times and the hours may have changed due to COVID restrictions. Every October, the Mansfield Reformatory Preservation Society hands the prison over to the Haunted X, which for the entire month transforms the building into a haunted house, complete with actors, props, and animatronics. Please hold for an important message from one of my sponsors. Children who report memories of previous lives. Some young children, usually between the ages of two and five, speak about memories of a previous life they claim to have lived. At the same time, they often show behaviors such as phobias or preferences that are unusual within the context of their particular family and cannot be explained by any current life events. These memories appear to be concordant with child statements about a previous life. In many cases of this type, the child statements have been shown to correspond accurately to facts in the life and death of a deceased person. Some of the children have birthmarks and birth defects that correspond to wounds or other marks on the deceased person whose life is being remembered by this child. In numerous cases, post-mortem reports have confirmed these correspondences. Older children may retain these apparent memories, but generally they seem to fade away around the age of seven. The young subjects of these cases have been found all over the world, including Europe and North America. Now, for the past 20 years, Dr. Jim Tucker, now the director of the Division of Perceptual Studies, has focused mainly on cases found in the United States. His book, Return to Life, offers accounts of very strong American cases of young children who remember previous lives. In his book, Dr. Tucker writes about the now well-known case of James Leininger, a young boy who had verifiable past life memories of being a World War II pilot, and Ryan Hammonds, who had verifiable memories of being a Hollywood extra and a talent agent. Statements made by a child who seems to be remembering a previous life can be quite varied. The following list compiled by the doctor of possible statements is not an exhaustive list by any means. It is designed to give an idea of the kinds of things a parent or caregiver might hear and in our Western culture tend to dismiss as fantasy. It is also true that a child might say one or more of these things and not be remembering a previous life at all. It's probably best 
not to pump a child for information, nor to try and prevent him or her from saying such things. A type of statements a child might make, for example, you are not my mommy or my daddy. I have another mommy or a daddy. When I was big, I used to have blue eyes, had a car, etc. That happened before I was in mommy's tummy. I have a wife, a husband, children. I used to drive a truck, live in another town, etc. I died in a car accident or after I fell. The list goes on. Remember when I lived in that other house? Was your daddy, etc.? Now, advice to parents of children who are reporting memories of previous lives. If you are a parent seeking advice about your child who seems to remember a previous life, please refer to Dr. Jim Tucker's advice to parents. You can contact him if your child appears to be having memories of a previous life. They are very interested in hearing about cases of young children who are currently spontaneously speaking about memories of a previous life. If you are a parent or a caretaker of a young child, please email his research assistant, Diane Morini at dsm3j at virginia.edu to submit your observations and experiences of your child's behavior and statements about memories of a previous life. Rest assured that only qualified study team members will have access to your report of a child's past life memory submitted via email, and they adhere to a strict code of privacy and confidentiality in all instances. They do not disclose the names of the people involved in the account in any way without first seeking explicit permission from the parents. You may note that there are a few published cases in, way, in which the actual names are used in presenting details of the case. They want you to know that this is rare and only done by special permission granted to them from the parents. A new conspiracy theory. Children kidnapped from Mars slave colony. Even in the age of free-flying conspiracy theories, this one is a doozy. A guest on Alex Jones' radio show named Robert David Steele claimed that Mars is inhabited by people sent to the Red Planet against their will. We actually believe that there is a colony on Mars that is populated by children who are kidnapped and sent into space on a 20-year ride, so that once they get to Mars, they have no alternative but to be slaves on the Mars colony, Steele told Alex Jones. The founder of the controversial InfoWars website, I don't put a whole lot of faith in anything Alex Jones puts out. It's unclear why this ride would last two decades. It takes just six to nine months to reach Mars using current propulsion technology. Perhaps Steele believes that the kidnapped children return to Earth as adults 20 years after being spirited away. Whatever the details may be, Wackadoo Alex Jones seemed open to the possibility. And this guy also believes that the Earth is flat and that school shootings are faked. Look, I know that 90% of the NASA missions are secret, and I've been told by high-level NASA engineers that you have no idea, Jones told Steele. Who the show billed as a CIA insider, there is so much stuff going on.
Alex Jones said. He went on to add that clearly they don't want us looking into what is happening. Every time probes go over, they turn them off. The Daily Beast did some due diligence on Steele's assertion, contacting NASA for comment. Alex Jones has supported and promulgated conspiracy theories in the past. He has claimed, for example, that the December 2012 massacre in Newton, Connecticut, in which 20-year-old Adam Lanza shot and killed 27 people, including 21st graders, was a hoax. He also has claimed that the 9-11 attacks were staged and not nearly as bad as they have made it out to be. And he's also still claiming that COVID is a democratic hoax. Mars has proven to be fertile ground for conspiracy theorists over the years as well. There's the famous face on Mars, of course. And more recently, UFO enthusiasts have claimed that NASA's Curiosity rover has captured images of a variety of red planet animals that resemble rats, lizards, squirrels, and crabs. Aliens exist, and they are bunkered under Mars with humans, says ex-Israeli space officials. He also says there's uh, such thing as a galactic federation. This was in 2020 when it was reported and released. And if there was not enough for us to go through in the whirlwind of a year, here comes a retired Israeli general who served as the head of the country's space security program. Says aliens exist and there is such thing as a galactic federation. Chaim Eshed, is, who is currently a professor, says both the United States and Israel have been dealing with aliens for years. There's even an underground bunker on Mars, Ashed says, with human and alien representatives, according to the Jerusalem Post. Unidentified flying objects have not asked not to be published, that they are here. Humanity is not ready yet, the 87-year-old professor told Israel's Hebrew newspaper, Yediot Aryanat. Ashed said U.S. President Donald Trump at the time was aware of the aliens and almost blew the top off the lid, but the Galactic Federation stopped him before he could. The Galactic Federation wanted to prevent mass hysteria because it believes humanity needed to evolve and reach a stage where we will understand that what space and spaceships are, why they're here and where they're coming from. The retired general also disclosed that the aliens entered an agreement with the United States. They signed a contract with us to do experiments here, NBC News reported him as saying. As for why he's coming to the light with this information back in 2020 and still talking about it in 2022, 2020, the year that keeps piling on the woes, it simply has to do with how the academic landscape has changed. And what better time to introduce such wild information than in the midst of a global pandemic when people are focused on the lunacy of Donald Trump at that time, uh, the wars and rumors of wars that were going on in the world, and a global pandemic that was killing people by the thousands every day. 
this would be the best time to release that kind of information. He goes on to say, if I had come up with what I'm saying today five years ago, I would have been hospitalized, he said. Today, they're already talking differently. I have nothing to lose. I've received my degrees and awards. I am respected and universities abroad. The Trump administration unveiled in the final year of his presidency, the sixth arm of the armed forces, the Space Force. Space is going to be in the future, both in terms of defense and offense. We're now the leader of space, says Trump. He said this in May of 2019, as he received the official flag of the military branch. The Space Force is focused on the United States military domain in space, maintaining satellites and communications which focus on geopolitics. Now, I was talking earlier about the Mothman Festival, well, actually the Mothman Encounter in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. Every year, there has been a festival held in honor of those who perished during that horrible incident that occurred in 1967. It is the Mothman Festival. It's more of a paranormal slash sci-fi festival. And it's a chance for all of us to come together, have fun meeting and greeting, talking, answering questions at a Q&A. We get to work with and have presented some of my own documentaries, those that I've taken part in producing and or writing for or just selling my books at my own booth at the Mothman Festival. Unfortunately, the last two years, uh, the Mothman has, the festival has had to be put on hold due to the pandemic and two years of uh, COVID fear. So with the mention of Mothman as being a harbinger of sorrow, I had to mention the actual festival that takes place every September in Point Pleasant, West Virginia. The, it's looking good this year. It may actually happen again. So I'll keep you posted on that. If it does, in fact, come up again, I can give you the date and times and hopefully the date and time for which I will be appearing and speaking. Now on to Banshee. Irish Bean Sidhe, Scots Gaelic, would call the Banshee a Bansith, woman of the fairies. That's what Bansith means. Supernatural being in Irish and other Celtic folklore whose mournful keening or wailing, screaming or lamentation at night was believed to foretell the death of a member of the family or the death of the person who heard the spirit's shriek. In Ireland, Banshees were believed to warn only families of pure Irish descent. The Welsh counterpart, the Gwarch Ye Rebin, Witch of Rebin, visited only families of old Welsh stock. The Scottish novelist Sir Walter Scott mentioned belief in a kind of banshee or household spirits in certain Highland families in his Letters of Demonology and Witchcraft from 1830. Sometimes, this is how she's described as looking, she has long streaming hair and wears a gray cloak over a green dress and her eyes are red from continual weeping. 
She may be dressed in white with red hair and a ghastly complexion, according to first-hand accounts by Anne Lady Fan Shui and her memoirs Lady Wild and Ancient Legends of Ireland provides another description. The size of the banshee is another physical feature that differs between regional accounts, though some accounts of her standing unnaturally tall are recorded. The majority of the tales that describe her height, state, and banshee stature as short, anywhere between one foot to four feet tall, her exceptional shortness often goes alongside the description of her as an old woman, though it may also be intended to emphasize her state as a fairy creature. In O'Brien's Irish-English Dictionary, the entry for Sith Brog states, hence being Sighai, plural Menya Slig, she fairies or women fairies, Cregiously supposed by the common people to be so affected to certain families that are they here to sing mournful laminations about their houses by night. Whenever any of the family labors under a sickness which is to end by death, but no families which are not of an ancient and noble stock are believed to be honored with this fairy privilege. Sometimes the banshee assumes the form of some sweet singing virgin of the family who died young and has been given the mission by invisible powers to become the harbinger of something coming, some doom to her mortal kindred. Or she may be seen at night as a shrouded woman crouched beneath the trees, lamenting with veiled face or flying past in the moonlight crying bitterly. The cry of the spirit is mournful beyond any other sounds on earth and betokens certain death to some member of the family whenever it is heard in the silence of the night. Most, though not all, surnames associated with banshees have the O or the Mick and Mac prefix, that is, surnames of Goidlic origin, indicating a family native to the insular Celtic lands rather than those of the Norse, Anglo-Saxon, or Norman. Accounts reach as far back as 1380 to the publication of the Catherium Theor Heilbeghai, Triumphs of Torlo by Sean MacCraith. Mentions of banshees can also be found in Norman literature of that time. The Ua Brianen banshee is thought to be named Ebel, and the ruler of 25 other banshees who would always be at her attendance. It is possible that this particular story is the source of the idea that the wailing of numerous banshees signifies the death of a great person. In some parts of Leinster, she is referred to as the Bean Shoyante, the keening woman, whose wail can be so piercing that it can shatter glass. In Scottish folklore, a similar creature is known as the Bean Naich, or Ben Naihagchain, little washerwoman, or Naihag, Na Hayath, little washer at the ford, and is seen washing the blood-stained clothes or armor of those who are about to die. In Welsh folklore, a similar creature is known as Sire Hayath. Please hold. 
for an important message from one of my sponsors. And this episode just keeps getting weirder in regards to omens and foretelling. And could these have something to do with an omen of some sort? Or is it just a supernatural anomaly that has yet to, been, to have been placed anywhere? The Dark Watchers, humanoid phantoms that haunt the hikers of California's Big Sur. For the last 300 years, locals and tourists alike have told chilling tales of the Dark Watchers, these massive specters that can make a person disappear with just a glance. The Santa Lucia Mountains are a marvel to behold, but as the mountains rise into California skies, with an endless ocean before them, shadowy figures sometimes materialize on the afternoon horizon above them. The Dark Watchers, known to the 18th century Spanish settlers as Los Viglantes Oscuros, or the Dark Watchers. These fearless silhouettes appear like witches with brimmed hats and walking sticks in hand. Oral tales across generations warn that approaching these specters could result in one's disappearance. Though modern science has suggested that the Dark Watchers might simply be the result of a hallucination. The phenomenon is no less mystifying or terrifying. Early Days of the Dark Watchers Tales of the Dark Watchers are often attached to the Chumash people of California, the Shumas, but apparently these indigenous Americans don't actually have anything quite like these specters in their folklore. According to the accounts of Spanish settlers, however, who recorded the massive beings in the 1700s. The creatures towered over mere mortals at 10 feet tall and appeared to be draped in cloaks and donned large, wide-brimmed hats atop their heads. Folklore warns that while the Dark Watchers make it their mission to sternly observe those in the mountains below, it is the wisest to turn away as those who dare to approach these figures vanished into oblivion. Unfortunately, tales of the Dark Watchers are about as vague as the shapes themselves. But 20th century authors like John Steinbeck added their own mythos around the phenomenon. Like many other California writers, Steinbeck grew up on the stories of the Dark Watchers. His own mother told him how she would bring food to the mountains as an offering to the creatures, only to later see flowers in their place. Other writers like Central California poet Robertson Jeffers also added to the legend of the Dark Watchers through his own imaginings. Jeffers described the Dark Watchers as forms that look human to human eyes, but certainly are not human. He noted that they come from behind ridges to watch and are known to emerge from the quiet twilight before they melted into the shadows. Now, can science explain this phenomenon? While there is no physical evidence to prove that these figures are anything more than visual anomalies, many people have snapped intriguing photos of them. From these photographs, some scientists have tried to determine what it is that people think they have actually seen. One such theories of those is that the Dark Watchers are simply the result of... Peridolia, a psychological 
phenomenon during which human brains seek out recognizable or familiar patterns and shapes in an otherwise alien or unclear image. The phenomenon is known to German locals as the Harz Mountains, as the Broken Spectre, named after the regional Broken Peak. The phenomenon sees an observer's magnified shadow plastered across the clouds. The mist, meanwhile, amplifies the shadow's size before it evaporates. Of course, many encounters with the Dark Watchers might also just be the shadows of swaying trees. Curiously, these purported beings are always encountered at high altitudes, where oxygen supplied to the brain is hampered. Could the Dark Watchers simply be a hallucination or a widespread misconception about the nuanced world that we live in? Like faces on the moon or the Virgin Mary on toast, people can often look for humanity in everything. Or perhaps one day, a team of experts will venture to the Santa Lucia Mountains and return with irrefutable evidence that the Dark Watchers are in fact real, shadowy creatures and want to remain in peace. And now we're back to talk more about the Kegsberg UFO incident. As I said before the commercial break, on the evening of December 9th, 1965, a large, brilliant fireball was seen in at least six U.S. states and Ontario, Canada, as it streaked over the Detroit, Michigan, Windsor, Ontario area, reports of hot metal debris over Michigan and northern Ohio, grass fires and sonic booms in the Pittsburgh metropolitan area were attributed to the fireball. Some people in the village of Kecksburg, about 30 miles southeast of Pittsburgh, reported that something from the sky had crashed in the woods. Wisps of blue smoke, vibrations, and a heavy and loud thump. An early story in the Greensburg Tribune Review stated the following. The area where the object landed was immediately sealed off on the order of the U.S. Army and State Police. Reportedly, in anticipation of a close inspection of whatever may have fallen, State Police officials there ordered the area roped off to await the expected arrival of both the U.S. Army engineers and possibly civilian scientists. When state troopers and Air Force personnel searched the woods, they reportedly found absolutely nothing. A subsequent addition in the tribute review bore the headline, Searchers Failed to Find Object. Authorities discounted proposed explanations such as a plane crash, errant missile test, or re-entering satellite debris, and generally assumed it to be a meteor. Astronomer Paul Anier said the fireball was likely to have been a meteor entering the Earth's atmosphere. Geophysicist George Withrillo discounted the speculations that it was debris from a satellite and agreed that the reports were probably due to a meteor. Astronomers William P. Bittleman and Fred Hess said it undoubtedly was a meteor bolide. A spokesman for the Department of Defense in Washington said first reports indicated the reported fireball was a natural phenomenon. And many references such as space expert and skeptic James Oberg proposed the Cosmos 96 explanation in 1991 and advocated it in a 1998 Pittsburgh Post-Gazette article on the Kecksburg case. 
Metal debris fall and recoveries were reported in or near El Raya, Ohio, and Livonia, Jackson, and Battle Creek, Michigan. Example sources were Chicago Tribune and Baltimore Sun, December 11, 1965. The spokesman review, December 10, 1965. UFO starts many fires, according to Chicago Tribune on December 11th. Flaming streak across the sky, identified as a great meteor. Could it be a UFO cover-up? I mean, there's so many references and sources that have done the research on this incident. They have gone to the location and talked to survivors, people who were young when they witnessed it or who were at a certain age when they witnessed it, and now they are old, and they are able to share their stories with researchers, investigators, journalists, and take the articles that were written at the time that it happened and come to their own conclusion. And, of course, television and film has given us stories on this incident. In 1990, the NBC television show Unsolved Mysteries aired an episode partially devoted to the incident. The episode suggested an extraterrestrial craft had crashed. It quoted local residents at the time who said they had found an object in the woods shaped like an acorn and about as large as a Volkswagen Beetle, bearing writing resembling Egyptian hieroglyphics, which was subsequently removed in a secret military operation. A prop from that show remains on display in the village of Kecksburg. In 2003, the Sci-Fi Channel aired a two-hour documentary, The New Roswell, Kecksburg Exposed, hosted by Bryant Gumbel. In it, Kecksburg resident John Hayes said that as ten, a 10-year-old boy, he saw a flatbed truck emerging from the site near his house, carrying something the size of a Volkswagen, an exact replication of the claims he made in the first episode of Unsolved Mysteries Season 3 in 1990. And in 2008, an episode of the Discovery Channel series Nazi UFO Conspiracy suggested the incident was the recovery of an alleged Nazi UFO called Die Glock, the bell. Now, History Channel also has UFO Hunters, the show that was on in 2009 to 2013, suggested a military conspiracy and cover-up was related to the incident. And, of course, Ancient Aliens, also from History Channel, suggested the alleged Nazi secret weapon Die Glock was recovered at Kecksburg, prompting a government conspiracy and cover-up due to the fact that it was Nazi technology that showed up in a village in Pennsylvania, United States of America in about 20 years after World War II ended. Please hold for an important message from one of my sponsors. Pop culture has given us many ideas of what aliens could be like. E.T., He brought a lot of heart and compassion for beings from other worlds and the compassion they would have for us. ALF, the short-lived sitcom from the 80s, I think it was on about four seasons, he brought the laughs, he brought the heart. That was a fun show, and it showed that humans and aliens could coexist in the same household. Then, of course, you've got 
the movie Aliens, which shows a more hostile version of an alien and that us meeting with them would not be a, a good idea or a way in our favor. Then you've got Close Encounters of the Third Kind. They wanted to bring compassion and understanding to us and allow us to learn from them and learn from our mistakes. Then you've got the variations of aliens in the X-Files. As I mentioned earlier in this episode, the gray aliens. What kind of an agenda do they have? Are they, in fact, crossbreeding with our species and creating a hybrid human-alien species since they may or may not be able to reproduce on their own any longer? That's one theory. But the one that I'm about to talk about would be humans will undoubtedly attack aliens before they attack us, says one scientist. Humanity has often longed for the stars, wishing to find other species out in the expanse. But if humans and aliens collided, would it be a peaceful interaction? Absolutely not. If you think otherwise, you're adorably naive. With humanity's history of violence and colonialism, it's impossible to believe that humans and aliens would get along. Now, scientist Albert Canaletto in the report, will aliens attack first or will humans attack aliens first? Canaletto explained that humans are far more likely to be the invading aliens than being invaded by another force. In fact, the chance of extraterrestrials being the initial threat is incredibly minimal. The scientists came up with the minuscule odds of humanity being invaded by aliens, just 0.0014%, of course. This is good news for us, as we don't particularly want to be invaded, but bad for any existing extraterrestrials, as we are the much bigger threat. Canaletto explains that humanity would more likely attack humans Humanity would more likely attack aliens due to the fact that extraterrestrials reaching Earth would likely already be nonviolent. With Earth unlikely to be the first planet of additional contact for alien races, there would be no reason to attack humanity. In his report, Canaletto explains that the war-going nature of our species changes as they become more technologically advanced. Specifically, as civilizations start to use more energy, they are less likely to attack. Canaletto calls the Kardashev scale. If an alien race researched Earth, it would likely be a galactic civilization. This means that the race would be able to harness energy from the entirety of the known universe thus not needing to fight Earth over resources. Data from last century shows that the frequency of invasions between countries have gradually decreased as time goes by, the scientist told Forbes. With this in mind, aliens coming to Earth are more likely to come to Earth purely for scientific purposes. However, humanity might wish to fight in order to advance technology and gain access to more researches unparalleled insider access get it all introducing the sirius xm platinum vip plan our newest most exclusive plan 
listen in two cars, plus stream anywhere with two app logins. Access a massive, exclusive library of live concert video and audio recordings through nugs.net. Have opportunities to experience live and virtual SiriusXM events, including VIP-only exclusives. Get all your questions answered by a dedicated VIP customer care team. Plus, get all the entertainment we've got. It's all included with your Platinum VIP subscription. Be a VIP. Call 844-711-8800 to learn more. Offer detail supply. One login for activated vehicle. Not available in Canada. My apologies. I was just informed that the intro lead-in song sounded like utter and total bloody shite. So my apologies on that. We will make sure on my end that that does not happen again. Leading into our first story within this ever-growing segment. On October 23, 2010, F.E. Warren Air Force Base in Cheyenne, Wyoming, temporarily lost the ability to communicate with 50 of its Minuteman III missiles. The five-missile alert facilities responsible for launching those ICBMs Alpha through Echo, compromising the 319th Strategic Missile Squadron, would have been unable to do so during the period of the disruption. The dramatic story was leaked to Mark Ambender, a contributing editor at The Atlantic, which published that story three days later. The U.S. Air Force then quickly acknowledged the problem, saying that a backup launch system could have performed the task and claiming that the breakdown had lasted a mere 59 minutes. Truth be told, it lasted 26 hours. However, the latter statement was untrue, according to two missile technicians, Staten at F.E. Warren, who say that the communications issue, while intermittent, actually persisted over 26 hours. Significantly, these same individuals report sightings by numerous teams of an enormous cigar-shaped craft that maneuvered high above the missile field on the day of this disruption. The huge UFO appeared similar to a World War I German Zeppelin, but had no passengers gondola or advertising on its hull. It would, uh, as it would with a commercial blimp. The confidential Air Force sources also report that their squadron commander was warned witnesses not to talk to journalists or researchers about the things they may or may not have seen in the sky and that he threatened several severe penalties for anyone violating security. Consequently, these persons must remain anonymous at this time. The disquieting information was provided to noted researcher and author Robert Hastings, who over the past several months has interviewed law enforcement and civilian eyewitnesses to ongoing UFO activity near F.E. Warren's ICBM sites. Between September 2010 and April 2011, Hastings has just published a detailed expose on those developments titled Huge UFO Sighted Near Nuclear Missiles During October 2010 Launch. System Disruption? which may be read at www.theufochronicles.com backslash 2011 backslash 06 backslash huge dash UFO dash sighted dash 
near dash nuclear dash missile missiles underscore 19.html. If you want the full address uninterrupted, you can email me with any of your queries, and I will be happy to provide all the following information. The article can also be located at the UFO Chronicles homepage by placing its title in the Google site search box. The October 23rd missile incident occurred less than a month after Hastings, September 27th, 2010 UFO Nukes Connection press conference at the National Press Club in Washington, D.C., during which seven U.S. Air Force veterans discussed UFO incursions at nuclear weapons sites during the Cold War era. CNN streamed that event live. A full-length video was available on YouTube. According to the veterans, including two retired colonels, the still-classified incidents involved sudden appearance of a mysterious aerial craft that briefly hovered over ICBM sites and sometimes disrupted the missile's guidance and control systems. During one December 1980 case, a disc-shaped UFO sent down laser-like beams into a nuke's storage depot. The witness said that they felt compelled to speak out about the reality of UFO activity at nuclear weapons sites and urged the U.S. government to finally reveal the facts to the American people. Regarding the recent situation at F.E. Warren Air Force Base, Hastings emphasizes that his sources have not said that the UFO sightings during that October 23, 2000 and 10 missile communications disruption actually caused it. And it must be noted that the Air Force's Global Strike Command has officially attributed the problem to an improperly replaced circuit card in a weapons system processor. He adds, nevertheless, the intermittent presence of a huge cigar-shaped aerial craft during the hours-long, not minutes-long, crisis was definitely noted and remarked upon a various technical team mock-up working on the base's missile field. Hastings concludes that the UFO sightings near Warren's missile sites in recent months by Air Force personnel and civilians present the latest chapter in the UFO nukes connection saga. Its well-documented history, as revealed by recently declassified U.S. government files and military eyewitness testimonies, extend back to December 1948. Countless official denials about the reality of the situation have been issued over the years, but sooner or later, this amazing story will break wide open. What we need now is a courageous government whistleblower to come forward with the facts and some daring journalists willing to treat the story seriously and write about it. The unfortunate truth uh, is that Mr. Balick passed away in 1997. Uh, he left a legacy, a lot of unanswered questions, but really kind of shook the world, took it by storm with his firsthand encounters, his claims, and the stories that he shared. And in 1990, Balick claimed that he spent time in two separate periods of the future only to return to the present and tell his story. And that was just the beginning of the fantastic revelations of this totally, completely 
absolutely 100% not fake time traveler. As if someone would make that up anyway. Uh, he was kind of a peculiar child in his own words. Um, Al Balik was born in 1927 to an otherwise wholesome family. He says his first memory came at a Christmas party when he was just nine months old. He found he was able to fully understand the adults talking in the room around him. Growing up, he says he was known as the walking encyclopedia, easily distinguishing himself among his classmates. While in the Navy, you can travel through time and space. Am I right? As a young man, duty called. So Al was compelled to join the Navy to help fight the Nazis. It was here that Balik took his first trip through time. According to Balik, he was just a lowly naval officer serving aboard the USS Eldridge in 1943. In later years, the Eldridge would become famous for supposedly harboring the Philadelphia experiment. One day, August 13th, 1943 to be exact, Balik and his brother were subject to some odd happenings aboard the ship. They jumped to safety only to land in the year 2137. While in 2137, Balik was treated for radiation injuries through a highly advanced series of treatments that relied on vibration and light. What's more, the entertainment in the hospital was solely educational and news programming, the only choice of TV in the entire world. The Earth had undergone rapid change. When Balik landed in 2137, he discovered that geographical shifts had transformed the globe. The coastlines and every continent had changed dramatically. Florida had disappeared except for the panhandle. That's easily the worst part. The Great Lakes were just one giant Great Lake. Atlanta was three miles from the Atlantic coast. In 2137, Balik said that the United States infrastructure had been completely destroyed. The central government was a total thing of the past. Both Canada and the U.S. were gone, ruled over with a kind of locally enforced martial law. According to Balik, around 2005, the United States and Europe would have banded together to fight off the combined threat of China and Russia. The resulting war killed billions of people. The total population of the world war of the world would only be 300 million and essentially ruin the world's governments. Now, an update on his prediction for 2005. Uh, according to how things were supposed to go in order and the way the chips were supposed to fall to create that destiny, it was thwarted by the events of the September 11th terrorist attacks of 2001. That really put the events that would have happened in that strain of reality in 2005, thus preventing them from occurring due to the 9-11 attacks. From there, Balak says he was sent forward to the year 2749. There he stayed for two years before being transported back to 2137 to pick up his brother. In 2749, the world had adapted the technology to build mobile floating cities. Government of any kind was non-existent in that time. Everything was run by an AI called the Synthetic Intelligence Computer System that worked telepathically. Wars were non-existent in 2749. Balak stated that there were no wars because, according to him, 
wars were practically impossible. There were no military or soldiers, Navy or Air Force. So any conflict between countries was completely irrelevant. Bailiff reported that no one needed money in 2749. Simply, there was no need for it. Everyone had their own credits, which allowed them to buy everything they wanted and wanted at any time. So at this point, Balak is sent back from 2749 to 2137 to pick up his brother. From there, the duo are transported to 1984, where they meet Dr. John von Neumann, who convinces the two men to travel back to the original time, 1943. In case you're lost, and stop the Philadelphia experiment from ever happening. The two men agreed when they got, went back and got the job done, after this time in the Navy, Balik completed his education in electronics. Soon, though, he found himself contracted out to various military contractors who slowly took the young electronics whiz into their confidence. They revealed to him that the U.S. military was actively involved in adapting alien technology and forwarding research on psych operations. Soon after, Balik was recruited by the Montauk Project. Though Balik was working a job in California, his importance to the Montauk project was so great that he was given access to the super-secret network of high-speed trains running under our country. This allowed him to work his normal job during business hours and then moonlight in Montauk for the government. Of course, once the time tunnel was perfected, he could just teleport back and forth. Throughout the 1970s, Balik was the program director of the psychics who worked in Montauk. At that capacity, Balik exerted considerable control over the project and was even afforded some first-rate business trips. Balik allegedly went to Mars on several occasions. He remembers several other trips he took with teams to research stations in 100,000 BC. Other planets to get canisters filled with light and dark energy, and to the year 6037. Once Balik went public with his extraordinary adventures, the government sadly disavowed him. They didn't even do anything him, to him or give him the dignity of calling him a crazy kook. They simply let him lecture and talk, because while well, maybe he was a crazy old kook who also believed his real name was Edward Cameron, and that he'd been living for more than a hundred years. Balik believes he was not harmed or stopped because his time-traveling experience locked him into this timeline. Somehow by being here today, he among others in the program served to balance the effects they produced from prior time-traveling experiments. It just so happened that the time travel to which Balik was subjected in 1943 Sounds an awful lot like the set and the story for 1984's The Philadelphia Experiment, a movie in which a couple of sailors serving aboard the USS Eldridge are flung forward through space and time. Admittedly, Balak's story differs pretty substantially from the plot that the movie from there onward is based on, but he did have about six years to flesh out his own backstory once he got some inspiration. Thing is, 
the story for the movie, The Philadelphia Experiment, is based on actual testimony from those who lived it. In the years since Al Balick's 1990 confessions, the conspiracy community has been abuzz with his reputed version of the events. Of course, his story has drawn some criticism, even among his own. Can we call them colleagues, for instance? One site has devoted countless hours to proving that Balick had nothing to do with the Philadelphia experiment. The site that debunks Balick's stories doesn't refute the fact of the Philadelphia experiment's existence, only that an exhaustive line-by-line inspection of Balick's entire history of speeches was needed in order to prove he had no part in it because Balak's story was so airtight otherwise. If you're unfamiliar with the whole Philadelphia experiment thing, there's much more to cover. Much more to cover up than Balak's story. In fact, most people think that the original Philadelphia experiment idea came from a man named Carlos Allende, who wrote a series of particular eloquent letters to writers Morris K. Jessup in 1956. Allende's version of events cast Einstein as a bit more of a mad scientist type than history remembers. According to Allende, Einstein used the U.S. Navy to accomplish his own ends. The government itself reportedly had no clue that time travel experiments were being done. Allende was all too happy to confess that the whole thing was a delusional hoax later in life. Balak died on October 10th 2011 in Guadalajara, Mexico. Al was 84 years old. It was rumored in 2007 that he had died from a stroke. And that went on for a few years until his actual day of death was announced in 2011. He was buried at a local cemetery in Guadalajara. At Balak's birth certificate, it's dated March 31st, 1927. But whether he was born on that date or not depends on how much of Al's story you're willing to believe. He has always maintained that his real identity is that of Edward Cameron, son of a career naval officer, and that he had been regressed back in time to that of a nine-month-old baby in California in December of 1927, where he was raised as Al Balick by Arthur E., and Albertina Balick. Bro, your show is crazy. I don't know if you can hear it, but I'm literally listening right now. Yeah, I'm literally listening to it right now. It's pretty entertaining. A lot of paranormal stuff on there, so I really appreciate it, bro, because that's my kind of thing, man. I love diving into those topics. Um, I don't know if you'll find mine as interesting as I find yours, but... I got a podcast too, so here's a promotion. This is the Cruise Control Podcast. My name is Chris Cruz. Thank you again, and keep going. We assume Bigfoot crossed the road to get to the other side, as the old joke goes, but when the enigmatic hominid Nobody knows for sure. Here's what we do know. On June 22, 2009, at around 6.30 p.m., a 19-year-old college student was driving on a curvy road near 
Rhineback, New York. Now, this was a back road. On the way to a rehearsal at a nearby performing arts center, according to the BFRO report, as he swerved to miss an object on the road, a shopping bag containing, oddly, an open cereal box and a small log. He glanced in his rearview mirror and saw someone or something darting behind his car, apparently to retrieve the bag. A moment later, the student stopped and turned his car around and got a three to four second glimpse of something walking on two feet about 50 feet away. He described the creature which he saw from the rear and side profile as being between seven to seven and a half feet. Covered with black hair and possessing broad muscular shoulders with arms that swung in an exaggerated fashion and palms that faced upwards, the witness recalled that he felt nervous, confused, and excited at the same time during his brief encounter. At about 1.30 on the morning of January 8th in 2008, a Big rig driver was hauling a load of Idaho potatoes on US I-15 near the town of Skiripio, just outside of St. George, Utah. As he downshifted and headed down an incline, the fog grew increasingly heavy. The driver noticed something by the side of the road with glowing eyes and thought it might be a deer. When he switched on his high beams, he was startled to see a gigantic creature running across the road from left to right on long strides, just 20 feet or so away. According to an interview with the BFRO investigator, he later estimated based on a comparison of his truck and factoring on the distance that the creature was at least 10 feet tall and between six to 800 pounds. It had black hair and big eyebrows and long lanky arms that were proportionally longer than a human's. For a moment, it turned its head and stared at the rapidly approaching truck. The driver swerved hard to the middle of the freeway to avoid hitting the creature, which nearly caused the truck to crash. Fortunately, he regained control of the vehicle, but he managed to roll to a stop two to 300 yards away and looked back. The mysterious figure was gone. The driver an avid outdoorsman and hunter told the BFRO investigator that he'd always been skeptical about the existence of Bigfoot, but after actually seeing one in the flesh, he changed his mind. His opinion was forever changed. It scared the hell out of me, he admitted. Another such instance, it was about quarter past six on the morning of September 1st, 2009. A woman commuting to a job in Riffle, Colorado, was feeling a little groggy on her way to work, despite her usual cup of takeout coffee. Just before she started up through Independence Pass, she decided to pull her truck over to the side of the road and get a little fresh air. As she got out of the truck, she noticed some movement in the meadow directly ahead of her. At first, she thought it might be a bear, but when the creature stood up, she saw that it had arms that hung to its side just like a person. The creature was huge and had a cinnamon-colored style fur. She told Bifro, BFRO, the investigator, and after some coaxing on the part of the investigators, she also revealed that it had an additional 
anatomical feature, a pair of large breasts. Prior to the encounter, she witnessed the, uh, admitted that she had always poo-pooed the possibility of such creatures existing, but said, my life is forever changed. At around dusk, on August 29th, 2011, a woman was outside her house with a litter of whippet puppies who were going potty when she heard a whistling sound, the sort that she makes when she's trying to get the attention of her dogs. Thinking that it might be another one of her pets, a parrot perhaps, she did a few back-and-forth whistles with the source. Then one of her adult dogs, an Australian shepherd, woofed and barked wildly, and she heard a loud rustle in the nearby forest. She looked up to see a tall, hairy creature. It was an estimated eight to nine feet tall. And when it saw her, it let go of the tree branch it was holding down with, and it stepped back into the trees and disappeared. The investigator with BFRO who interviewed the witness noticed that she was a former deer hunter and experienced in the outdoors, and thus unlikely to have mistaken the creature for another large animal, I'm sure that Bigfoot's curiosity would be heightened by a new woman living in the previously unoccupied house and a littler, uh, litter full of whippet puppies, he concluded. On October 23, 2010, at about 7.15 a.m., a deer hunter parked his all-terrain vehicle on a trail and quietly slipped into the still-darkened woods. He hoped to make it to his favorite clearing without spooking any deer in the area. As he was walking, he noticed a very large animal walking about 10 yards ahead of the trail. Oddly, while it didn't appear to be running, the animal seemed to cover about 15 to 20 feet. In just two strides, it made no noticeable noise. The hunter clicked on his flashlight. What I saw made my hair stand on end, he wrote in his report on the BFRO website. The creature was between seven and seven and a half feet tall, and he estimated that it weighed around 500 pounds. It was muscular and covered with dark fur with long arms and slightly hunched posture. I have seen a few bears, and I know positively that it was not a bear, he explained in his report. The creature quickly moved down a hillside and was gone after a few seconds. It all happened so quickly that he never even thought of using the digital camera he had with him. I used to think that Sasquatch couldn't exist because we would have seen it already, and if I saw it, there'd be tons of pictures, he admitted. But now I can see why that isn't true. You're usually startled by that point upon noticing it, and it's too late. In the swamps of Florida, Bigfoot is known by a different name, the skunk ape, an apparent reference to the appalling smell that the creature supposedly exudes, according to the BBC. The stinky creature may have been spotted on May morning of 2011. According to the report on the BFRO website, a fishing guide was using a pole to propel a flat boat in a mangrove swamp when he and his two clients, a commercial pilot and an attorney, spotted something on the shore about 100 yards away. At first, the guide thought the creature might be a feral hog or possibly a bear. But as the boat got closer, the creature, which apparently had been rooting through the sand or fish, for fish or crustaceans to eat, turned and stood up to look directly at them. The guide estimated the apparent skunk ape was 
as wide as a side-by-side refrigerator freezer with a muscular torso, a ZZ top-looking beard, and a hairless forehead. The creature stared at them for about 15 seconds and then made a guttural moan and a sort of a snort and walked away into the mangroves. And this next one, based on uh, the stories that have been shared with me from my listeners and people who follow my channel. On July 2009, a worker was returning home from a deck building job at about 6 p.m. As he drove through a wooded area near houses and a school, he noticed what first appeared to be a man standing on the side of the road. As the car got closer, however, the man suddenly bolted into the woods like a wild animal spooked by human presence. The driver slowed down and watched the creature run about 30 yards and then make a turn, which enabled the driver to get a better look at him. Unlike other reports that depict Bigfoot as gigantic, the driver reported that the creature was about 6 feet high, maybe 200 pounds. He said the creature was covered in shaggy, rust-colored fur and ran with a strange, hoppy, bounding motion. It was either real or there was a man in a very, very convincing costume. The witness reported to the BFRO website. Another one. On October 25, 2010, a man was watching a movie at about 1 a.m. when he heard a noise outside his house. This sounded like a long blast from a car horn or a police siren. He hit the mute on his TV and realized that the sound was more like a howl or an injured animal. He assumed that it was a bear or a mountain lion. The next evening, a friend came to pick him up to drive to a casino at about 8 p.m. The two men had driven about four miles when they both heard the noise once again. They slowed down and the noise stopped. They resumed driving and then suddenly had to swerve to avoid a car ahead of them and had abruptly stopped. It was then that the two gamblers spotted what appeared to be a man-like creature at least 10 feet tall, covered in dark brown and black fur, with eyes that glowed from the reflection of their headlights. Human eyes don't do that, the witness explained in his report. After 20 to 30 seconds, the creature walked off with a fluid gait and definitely was not human, and the two men quickly drove off in fear. They came home that evening by a different route to avoid another encounter, and the witnesses are now true believers. They describe themselves as being. They believe in Bigfoot, but added, if it's Bigfoot or not, I don't want that coming around my house, nor do I want to encounter it again. This one from September 8, 2007 happened between 8.30 and 9 p.m. A local law enforcement officer was driving to answer an alarm call on a ranch when he noticed someone or something coming up out of the ravine onto the side of the road. I thought to myself that I might have surprised someone who might have been growing marijuana in the woods or something like that, the officer reported to the BFRO website. But when he hit the brakes and quickly backed up, the headlights illuminated what he described as a creature about seven to eight feet tall, covered with thick brown matted fur, and walked upright. It had leaves and grass matted into its fur on the back, and it had been lying down at one point and was moving very slowly. The creature turned away from the officer and returned to the overgrowth, pushing aside small tree limbs and to clear its path. It was visible for only a few seconds, but he could hear the crunching noise and its movements for a bit longer. 
I couldn't believe what I was seeing, the officer wrote. It was definitely something I was not going to put out on the radio. And last but not least, this was submitted to me this week, as a matter of fact. You would think that a feral ape-like creature would tread lightly around humans who are equipped to respond to a, a sighting with a hail of bullets. Surprisingly, though, Bigfoot seems oblivious to our puny human weaponry as a Blackstone VA man, Virginia, and his son discovered in the early morning hours of May 3rd, 2011, when the two heard a loud noise outside their home. The man grabbed his pistol and the son picked up his shotgun, and they were outside to investigate, figuring that they would encounter either a burglar or a bear. Instead, the man reported on the BFRO website they, conf- they were confronted by an eight-foot-tall, hair-covered humanoid creature running toward them from the nearby woods. The man screamed at the creature to stop and told his son to shoot, which he did, into the air. The creature shrieked but continued running toward them, getting to within 15 feet before the pair retreated back to their house. I was in terror, the man wrote. He recalled that evening that the pervasive odor that really stunk from the Bigfoot and left footprints that were 8 to 20 inches. An investigator who visited the man's farm and interviewed him documented a series of other unusual incidences, including loud wails and slaps in the side of the house at night, suggesting that Bigfoot had paid him repeat visits. Could it be a warning? Could it be him hunting man instead of man hunting for Bigfoot? The world may never know, and hopefully that encounter does not turn south. Please hold for an important message from our sponsor. And that's it for this week on the finale of season four, covering the very best of 2022. Have a great holiday season, a great rest of the week, and keep me in mind because I have surgery the 29th of November on my torn meniscus. So who knows how that will turn out. Hopefully I can walk without a cane again. That would be great. I'm 47. I don't want to look 77 anymore with this blasted cane. I will talk to you with new episodes starting in January. Have a great Christmas, New Year's, Hanukkah, Kwanzaa, whatever you celebrate. And thank you again for making Paranormally Speaking what it is today. Neil Park signing off. Because the sun is coming. Jesus!